0: It is a truth, universally acknowledged, that a single man in possession of good fortune must be in want of a book. Hi, it's Sunday, you're listening to FabRadioInternational.com, and this is The Bookworm. I'm your host, Ed Fortune, and I'm here with...
1: Cy si your co-host.
0: So, coming up on the show, I will be in, I will be reviewing 21st Century Tank Girl. Oh,
1: it's a shiny book. Uh, inside, I will be reviewing. Well, I will be doing a little um, catch-up, sort of cover of the Farseer trilogy and the Tawny Man trilogy, um, because um, the lovely Robin Hobb will be publishing the her next book in this kind of series in August she's already done part one uh, and now she's doing part two of the Fits and the fool Georgie
0: uh, we'll also be talking to Game of Thrones, uh, storyboard artist and general comic book artist and generally all around nice dude Will Simpson in the middle of the show and at the end of the show we'll probably be talking about gravity I think
1: we'll be talking about gravity in, in, in a publishing way, not in a physics way.
0: We might defy gravity
1: I don't know, we'll try.
0: Let it go Across the world 24 hours a day Book news. That's that's news about books. Um, the shortlist for the first James Herbert Award for horror writing has been announced. Um, the the books, uh, several of which which we've reviewed on the show, by the way, um, most of which I've read. Oh, um, so uh, that's exciting. I, I read horror, apparently. Um, Emma Carey, The Girl of All the Gifts, which we absolutely adored. Mm. Um, Nick Cutter's The Troop, published by Headline. Fran- Frances Harding's Cuckoo Song, uh, which I also absolutely adored. Uh, Andrew Michael haley's the, the, the Lonely. Um, um Josh Malerman's Bird Box and Kim Newman's An English Ghost Story. Ooh, and, Kim and Newman! Kim Newman. I'm going to be very, very biased and say Francis Harding. Francis Harding. Francis Harding. Cuckoo Song. If, if it doesn't at least get some sort of acknowledgement, it'll be a crying shame because that's an amazing
1: novel. Uh, just to be nominated.
0: It just, I mean, it's just be nominated for all of them. I mean, it's lovely, okay. but <sighs> The Girl of All the Gifts is really good. Mm. They're all really good. Um, I kind of I wanted to go to Francis Harding or maybe Josh Mallowan or, or maybe well, you Michael said Haley. just to be
1: biased. Why is there a bias?
0: Because we've interviewed Francis, ah, and, and we 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 like Francis. Okay, she, I, I think she's ace, and she's a bit of a friend of the show. So, sure. So there is there is bias. So there is a slight bias. Um, <laughs> Whereas <was laughs> the reverse bias is true. Kim Newman, because Kim Newman used to used to write for Starburst magazine way back when, and he's one yeah. of the old. He's one of the kind of the, the old kind of guard. And I, I talked to him at WorldCon. We were chatting away, and he was like do you realise you used to work for Starburst magazine? I was like, yes. Do you realise they, they probably still owe me money? I was like, oh, I can't help you with that then. <laughs> well, so, you <yeah. laughs> know. <laughs> ah, well, so it's like awkward shuffling, which he said on purpose, because, you know, the, the magazine had gone bust and it, it, yeah. re, it had been reinvigorated several mm-hmm. times since then. Because you know, if your magazine's been around for 40 years, you, you've had a couple of adventures, shall yeah. we say. Yeah, Um but um, Stoppers magazine, by the way, is out in David right now, and it is absolutely fantastic. And you should totally, and utterly, one hundred percent buy one and read all the stuff that I've written for it, also everyone else's stuff as well. Um, getting away from that and stop digging myself into a small hole. Um, John Lydon supports libraries.
1: There we go. He's not a nihilist uh, anymore.
0: He never was. I know. Shall um, I get this out of the way? The Sex Pistols were a boy band. I don't care what you think. The Sex Pistols were a boy band. Um, in a specially recorded message, singer-songwriter, musician, and all-round bore John Lydon, also known as
2: <laughs>
0: also known as Johnny Rotten, has implored the UK and libraries to show their support on National Libraries Day, which is Saturday, the seventh of February. Uh, that's next week, by the way. In case you're not paying attention, but he's um, giving us good messages. It, 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 it is
2: a good message.
0: Yeah. It is, no, you know, it is a good message. And in fairness, you know, he's a very intelligent bloke who often gets it completely right.
1: Um, mm. I buy Country Life butter on that basis. Uh, exactly. Um,
2: I will hear no argument against Country Life butter for historic reasons.
0: Um, it this this entire support by the way does does coincide with his book uh, Anger is an Energy. Oh, um, there's a book. Um there there there's a coincidence. He has a book out. It's called Anger Is an Energy, apparently. Um but yes, the recording will be available to listen to uh, in libraries. Um Saturday, seventh February. Um there'll be all sorts of things going off. There'll be, you know, totally in trail walks guinness world record attempts stargazing apparently the black library doing a thing as well there's a warhammer thing going on lots of local authors are turning up historians all sorts of things national libraries diet day never mind john lydon national libraries day that sounds fab National Library's uh, day. National Library's Day, where you turn up the library and it's essentially a book-themed family fun day. What couldn't be, be- You know, what couldn't be more fun? Uh, as far as we're concerned, we're biased to a book show. If you're sitting there going, actually, yeah. I'd, I'd rather one themed on, on movies or fantasy or, or video games. Well, that's lovely. Library Day. Fantastic. Um, moving on, um, uh, Parliament Member Thomas Doherty has written a, a letter to uh, Shadiv uh, Javid, the Britain's culture secretary, noting that there is a compul- co- compelling case for a national debate on whether we should ban Mein Kampf. No, we shouldn't. That it's wasn't a... much of a debate, Ed. No, it really wasn't, but come on. Um, I mean, he's basically he's saying... the thing is, His letter says, I don't think the book should be banned, but we should talk about it. Okay, let's talk about freedom of speech. We should have some. Definitely. We should, we should have freedom of expression.
1: These are these are busy? What, what do they want? Should we get copies of it, pile them up, and burn them? Because that would be ironic, wouldn't it? Nah.
2: <laughs> yeah, you'd have to explain to people why that's ironic. Probably these days, unfortunately, because a lot of people don't know about that.
1: Maybe that's why we should have the debate. Maybe that's the point. Also, the point know? is, if
2: it, once you go down the slippery slope of let's Ban this specific book, hmm. he, book here, that it, it is, yeah. it, it is the slippery slope, fin end of the wedge. Of oh well, if we don't like that book, then we don't like this book, and we don't like this book, and and yeah, and
0: then honestly, how, how relevant is how relevant is Mein Kampf? It's, it's, it's a historical artefact at this point. Yeah. Um, it's I'm told
2: it's not very good. I've never read it.
0: It's the scribblings of a madman. Um, I, I read it when I was 18 and being pretentious. I started reading it and stopped because it was rubbish and unpleasant. I mean,
1: it's kind of zeitgeisty for young Austrians at the time, apparently. But, you know... <laughs> if they were wrong (laughs) but if
2: you you think back of all the literature that's ever been published only a small percentage ever makes it into the sort of canon of classics and stuff isn't it you know for every Jane Austen there's probably another 50 people writing popular romance novels of the day that we don't remember now.
1: I mean that's true. Uh, it, the chances are it's probably crap, but it was written by him, so yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Kind of but
0: you know, of the 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 narrow list of books written by murderous law- warlords, they aren't that many, and there's not that many that have survived history. Is it not?
2: Do they not have a tendency to sort of write out the burblings of their minds and get them self-published in a vanity deal?
1: Are you familiar with the works of Sian Yu? Uh, well, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, well, that's a, I think that's the
0: first actual serenity quote we've had in a while. Well done. <laughs> um, oh, well, the geeky strong this week. Uh, talking about geeky things, George Oral Martin has announced that The Winds of Winter is not going to be published in 2015.
2: No, oh, Really? When's it
0: going to be published? Uh, we, we have no idea. It's just not 2015. <laughs> Oddly enough...
1: Uh, the next Ice Age, ironically.
0: <laughs> um... <laughs> that that blog who writes that column for that Starburst magazine thing that I've mentioned, that would be yeah. me. I, I did actually put down maybe twenty fifteen, we hope, fingers crossed maybe. Um but every time you, every time as as someone who writes and reports and talks about the boot news, every mm-hmm. time it comes to someone like George or Martin, it's not just George, there are other authors that we could we could lump in and the kind of their books don't come out very regularly. It's just that he's the most famous example of someone who is mm. you know has a schedule that everyone's eagerly anticipating, um, but it's not that uncommon. And you know, to to quote Neil Gaiman, George R. R. Martin is not your bitch.
2: At what point are the TV shows going to run out of t- source material? Because we can't be
0: far uh, about off it. Two years time. Oh well, dear. He's flatly denied that he's finished writing everything. However, he has written between this, he's has written half a source book. On the, the world.
2: And um, my understanding is that the people at um, HBO have had him write an outline of what happens and what happens yes, at the
1: he end. He has written what happens at the end in a brief outline and they've locked it in a reinforced cupboard lead line so Superman can't <laughs> read it. A, um, <laughs> a mars- they
2: did that with the last page of Harry Potter, didn't they? Because again, she had it kind of broadly sketched out from the beginning and knew what happened at the end. And there were rumours that uh, yeah her Publisher had the last page locked in a lead lined vault in a basement, you know, secured underneath the city of London or whatever for a decade. <laughs> you know.
0: the, the, there's a master document, as I understand, it. there's a master document which is not, you know, he's not written the book, he's just sat down and because it's George Ormond, it's probably quite long, he, he's, he's written it all out and also he's, he's written half of a world source book which you can buy. Mm. Um, but yes, okay, it's not coming out in 2015. Wait! Um, some of us have had to wait 20 years for the sequel to, of books to come out back, so there you go. Anyway, we'll, we'll be back after these short messages. I'm if you want to interact with the show, Uh, in any way, shape or form you can contact us via Radio Bookworm, Radio Bookworm on Twitter we're at the at symbol Radio Bookworm, on Facebook we're slash Radio Bookworm, on Tumblr we're Radio Bookworm, we are also available on Mixed Food, Cloud and iTunes, you can get to us via the Starburst website as
2: well um, Mixclude, is that the Scottish version? Mixclude. Mixclude. Mixclude, eh? On Facebook, technically, we're Starburst Bookworm Podcast, because you changed the name.
0: Uh if you type in Radio Bookworm... Oh, do you get that. it? Oh, yeah, yeah, of course, because I'm
2: quite
0: clever. You can right. also phone us, actually, if you but want. But don't. But don't. You can phone us on 0161-238-905. <laughs> <laughs> is to come to life?
1: But
2: please don't, because I don't know how to get the phone into the studio channel, because nobody don't showed me that. that.
1: I mean, I could relay it while... <laughs>
0: No. <laughs> so, so you can fund us, but don't uh, And also, the, the, there's about a 50% chance You're in the United States And you're listening to a recording So probably not no. Unless you, but, but the powers, wrestling
2: right? guys will, will talk to you They're lovely If you have time
0: travel powers, call <laughs> us now Call us now, call us now Time travel, no, time travel doesn't exist Nuts. Yet. Uh, yet. Well, well this what? But no not. <laughs> look if it exists. I'm trying to always always exists. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, All of the all all of those adverts. None of this is
2: relevant to the book review. None of
0: this is relevant to the book review. All these adverts out of the way. Let's talk about a book. What book have I picked? I oh, have picked for today. 21st century Tank Girl because I have the humour of a child which is entirely relevant to 21st century Tank Girl <laughs> if you weren't lucky enough to grow up in the 80s or 90s you won't know who Tank Girl is or you might be familiar with this awful movie you might have watched on Netflix one oh, it's called no. Ta- Net- Tank Girl we don't talk about the movie Tank Girl was a 90s creation um, turned up in the indie magazine Deadline Deadline was all about indie music and bouncing up and down and had a slight punk sens- sensibility had loads of comic strips in it and it's kind of it's main comic strip because British, British comic books have to have a, a main subtle character characters somewhere yeah, in their yeah. comic book JIT 2018 has Judge Stredd Eaglehead yep. Down There Deadline because it had comic strips and also music reviews and interviews with Morrissey had Tank Girl as it's kind of it's main draw Tank Girl is a punk lass Shaven head, she, she rides, pa- uh, rides a tank round, mm. kind of the Australian desert, sometimes it's seen as a post-apocalyptic yeah. wasteland, sometimes it's not, it depends on what whimsy, because she wears a or, tank top as well, she wears t- sometimes. sometimes, sometimes, sometimes she wears a space suit, sometimes she wears not much at all, well, it's that, that kind of, of comic, it's that kind of a comic, um, she, she bombs around with her occasional boyfriend, Booger, who's also a kangaroo, which gives mm. you a hint that this might be set in Australia, but it's not really. Given the fact that the art, the, the creators of the book, when they were originally creating the the the, the comic strip back in the nineties, thought that you could drive from Australia to New Zealand and back in a tank. Yeah, no. Anyway,
2: <laughs> 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 well, well, the 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 the, the, uh, the sea that divides them is called the ditch. So you know, colloquially, really, it
0: is. It's it's people talk distance. about people talk
2: about hopping the ditch. Yeah, it's a very long distance. Mm. Planes planes disappear off the radar tracking thing between New Zealand and yeah. Australia. Slightly disconcerting.
0: Anywho, it's an anarchic comic strip. and Back in the 90s, it was this really big kind of new thing where we had a, a punk lass who was independent, running around, blowing things up with the tank, making rude jokes. This is all about the innuendo. This is all about the bottom gag. To give you a rough idea, this the, the cover that I have, because this is a dust-covered version, um, I believe the version in the, sh- the shops will be soft-covered, but never mind. The dust-covered version has a very long cylindrical spaceship, which Tank Girl is piloting. and In it, the head. In the head of it, which is large and bulbous. Then we have a long... Uh, it's got lots of pipework. It's very... Um, would we use the word baby? Venus, maybe? Uh, Venus? Venus. Venus. yeah. Venus, yeah. We, uh, be- Arterial. A beanie cylinder or shaft... And then these two round spherical engines. Um, mm. Yeah, it looks like something rude. And if you're sitting there going, "Oh, that sounds incredibly childish," it is. It's glorious. Uh, it, it's it's just on that side of adult when it comes to humour, And the fact that you know it's, it's adult technically, but you're being childish. You're, and it comes from a time.
1: It's adolescent, isn't it? It's
0: adolescent. It comes. It has a background from a magazine that was essentially. Sold to adolescents, people who are still really into music, still really kind of naive about the world, and, and still sniggering about you know their genitalia and finding it hilarious, and still finding finding farts funny. The back of this book says, "In space, no one can hear you fart." This is the level of humour we have. <laughs> so, is it any good? Well, sort of. Uh, yes, it is. The short version, it is fun. Um, the the, the, yeah, the Artists involved have got together and created something incredibly, incredibly silly. Uh, Hewlett and Martin, who've been around since, well, ever. Um, Jimmy Hewlett and Alan Martin just being very, very silly. We have... This, this feels like an annual. I was looking at this, and if, if you remember comic book annuals, this is very much like a comic book annual rather than a hardback cover. Is it filled with nostalgia? No, it's filled with Tank girl. It's not trying to harken back to, to the olden days. Um, on occasion, they do make reference to the fact that that over the last 20 years or so, she's gone from being this kind of fun, punk anarchic thing to being another standard part of British culture. Tank Girl is a very British cultural artefact. So there's a, there's a wonderful story in here called Journey to the Centre of the Tank, where she goes in the middle of a tank duel, she goes into the middle of the tank and finds herself... Surrounded by all sorts of other pop icons, so we have Emu, we have uh, Tom Baker Doctor Who, we have we have Bungle, um, and so on. Of the two Runnies, uh, we even have the, the the giant sausage on the fork coming from um, f- coming Grange from Grange Hill. Grange Hill. So yep. we have all these kind of mental images, uh, all these mental, comma images, um, that come. out The Honey Monsters here. Uh, I love and it's kind of saying Tank Girl, Tank Girl she's a cultural icon the art is very variable because they've got lots of multiple artists involved there's an lo- awful lot of cheesecake pictures in here as well which is just pictures of, of Tank Girl, Sub Girl and Barney Tank Girl, Jet Girl and Barney even um, Sub Girl's called Barney of course because you can't call her Sub Girl um, thought they did in the movie for no apparent reason um, yes it's silly it's daft it has a giant cylindrical rocket ship flying in between two hills
2: Yeah. it
0: has an entire very silly take on um, Fear and Loving Las Vegas it has various parodies of the rock industry of the music industry it's very daft but Tanker was always very daft there's a few prose bits they are alright um, they're not amazing but they, they never were if, if you remember the comic book back in the day there were prose bits in, in Deadline as well about Tank Girl and they're always just a bit kind of whimsical and a bit silly and maybe slightly, slightly space fillery. it looks pretty it's very daft does it do anything? No, it makes you laugh does it say anything? No, it makes you laugh mm-hmm. is, it, is it over any cultural significance? Not really, it's, 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 it's a really staffed series of, of slightly adolescent jokes. Is it worth buying? Absolutely, if you want to chuckle. Um, <laughs> this is the thing. The, the reason I chose to, to review 21st Century Tank Girl is to give you a sort of non-review. It's Tank Girl. It's stupid. It's silly. It, it's got very pretty drawings of very silly things going on. It'll make you grin from ear to ear. Is it going to change your life? Of course it's not, it's Tank Girl. Does it deserve to be made into a movie? Probably not. <laughs> is it worth your time? Yes, it is, because it'll make you chuckle. But it's not, you know, it, it, this is the thing that I absolutely love about it, is that there's, there's someone somewhere saying, they're going, do you know what, we should make a, a TV series. No, you shouldn't make a TV series about Tank Girl. You shouldn't yeah. have made a movie about Tank Girl. You should you make
1: could, a toilet book about Tank Girl.
0: You should make a, yes. <laughs> Totally <laughs> big about Tank Girl. You, you should make a T-shirt with slight something slightly rude on it about Tank Girl. You should make a cocktail about Tank Girl.
3: Mm.
0: You, you should you should make a series of branded beers about Tank Girl. The thing that the thing that doesn't work is is any other media any other media apart from you know comic books.
1: It's not I, an extended narrative, is it?
0: It's not. It's not a story. It's a series of really stupid gags, and it works. And the reason this works is because there are lots and lots of little short stories that make mm. you chuckle. If you try and if you try and read it in one sitting, you kind of you'll start to get a little kind of ah, bored towards the end mm-hmm. because you've heard the gag several times and you know you've yep. been ill with the laughing at least once. Put it down, dive in, have a laugh. Um, at the moment, it's out to kickstart the supporters, which has been a lot of people, but it will be on, out on shelves later this year, as we understand it, in a handy softback, mm-hmm. kind of easy to read on the toilet style version. Um, I don't think it's going to be on Comixology. It might be, but um, you leave the tablet at home and just, you know go to a, go to a proper bookshop and buy it if you fancy it. Or buy the Dead
1: Tree version.
0: Buy the Dead Tree version. Um, actually, I'm going to be a bit of a nerd here, actually. The, the production values are actually fantastic. It's proper, proper ink all the way to the page. thick glossy paper. I really like that. Really nice binding as well. Not that any of you care, you barbarians. So... <laughs> Twenty first century tankfield. It's a comic book. You should read it if you fancy a chuckle. It doesn't require any more critical functions beyond that, but have fun with it. Also, if you're desperate for the nostalgia, don't. Just 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 don't. Just just read all deadlines. Because you'll it's the same thing as before, it's just annual, it's just daft. It's, don't 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 live in the past. It's bad for you. This is Fat Review
2: International.
0: I was very lucky enough to talk to Will Simpson, who's coming up next on the show. He's uh, a storyboard artist for Game of Thrones, and you would be sitting there going, but Ed has got to do with books. He's worked on Rogue World he's he's worked on all sorts of comic books and all sorts of stuff. Lovely chap. Coming up next, Will Simpson. Embrace the alternative. This, this is Fab International. International. Will Simpson, welcome to the Bookworm.
3: Well, thank you very much.
0: You've had a very long and varied career. What can you tell us about yourself?
3: Um, well, what do you want to know, Ed? Because, I mean, my, myself, there's a lot of myself to go around. I, mean, I've been, uh, I did comic work for um, a long, long time. I mean, it's, it's got to be about 20, 25 years of comic work, I think. Um, some of that overlapped, of course, with the film work that I was doing. But, I mean, I started off years ago in a thing called Big Ben, The Man With No Time For Crime on Warrior Mag and um, from that I ended up going on to Transformers and from Transformers to Judge Dread, to um, Rogue Tripper, Tyranny Rex Universal Soldier as well for, um, for 2000 AD um, I did um, uh, Hellblazer for DC Comics um, I did some Batman I did Vamps um, for DC and I also did some Aliens for Dark Horse so I mean it's been a, a lot of stuff over the years And during that time, I was was just going to continue. (laughs) Don't you? That's all right. Um, During that time, I moved. um, I I was kind of getting asked to do some film projects, Um, so I did a lot. I ended up getting into doing film work at the same time, and then it became more film um, rather than comic work, and that got me to um, my present work on Game of Thrones. Mm. You know, I think there's a certain attention. To realistic detail, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I know there's a lot of cartoon stuff you see in, in European graphic novels as well. But I mean, if you think of the, the classic world of um, Tintin, where there were, you know, very very detailed backgrounds of places that, that, that were very real, and yet you had the cartoon characters running through them, I I, I think there's, I think there's something of um, uh, an understanding of art that was different in european comics. Now it's, it, it, I don't want to get into a sweeping thing because there's a you know my, there's loads of american artists who whose work I absolutely adore and and they were you know the, you can tell that that a lot of the guys were classically trained. I think I think and and this, I think it's one of those things in the european comics as well that 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 people never really um, uh, they always had this background of art that, that that was that was overlaid into the work that they were doing. You know, one of the one of the things I've noticed over the years, I think, was when when you got the new breed of comic artists coming along, and I mean, we're talking about quite some time ago, um, they, they were learning their skills from other comic artists as opposed to learning their skills from art first and then doing comic work. Afterwards, you know, you know, when you look back in the days of John Baseman, Neil Adams, and people like that, I mean, you can see that they they looked at reality before they actually drew their their work. You know, there, there were people. Jim Kubert the same people who, who understood form and and um, and structure of, of human beings, and um, and it's, it's the same thing with you know within European co- comics. I think there was a richness in European comics and a and a, and a certain. Uh, indulgence in, in European stuff that that allowed you to, um, it, it was richer in some way, you know, the, the 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 sense of what was okay to draw or what was okay to do create, created created a richer tapestry, I think, for what would become a graphic novel. I mean, graphic novels, of course, were so big in Europe way before they became anything in the states. And it's one—it's you know—it is one of those things that it, t- it took a while, I think, for people to catch on. It took a long time for Britain to catch on, even though Britain was still, you know, we, we had artists like Don Lawrence, who, of course, moved over to to France, wasn't it? I think, and and was doing Storm. Um, you know, the the Don, Don had been doing a two-page strip for years in, in Look and Look and Learn, and um, the Trigon Empire. And I mean, when you had something like that which was stunning, and, and you see that artwork turned into graphic novel um, style stuff. I mean, you just knew it worked. Um, so I know this is, this is rambling, but uh, you, you got me thinking about things there. <laughs>
0: How have the different American, British and European art styles influenced your work? Well,
3: one of the things about it, you see, because I remember when I was a kid and I, and I first started looking at comics, you know, my parents showed me, or, or I mean, they bought me dandies and beanos, so I had I had the cartoon stuff first. But that was only for a very short period of time, because then I discovered war comics, you know, you know, commando books and war picture library and stuff like that. And there was a realism in them that, that I really, really liked. And I, I made a big jump then um, because... Uh, my father used to buy me um, Look and Learn. My brother got to tell me why I got Look and Learn. And the thing, you know, they bought it, they bought it as an educational kind of comic magazine because it had a lot of historical stuff, but with beautiful illustrations. But I used to always turn every week to the um, Trigon Empire at the back, which was a two-page comic strip. And it, I think for me, you know, when you look at something that actually looks like classical painting in two pages, you you kind of go, my God, this is comics as well. I think the diversity of comic work that was coming out of Europe, maybe that's why the graphic novel thing was better. I think the diversity was greater in Europe than it was necessarily um, at one time in the States, You because know, even though when you love comics, you can see the differences in all the different artists that came out of the States. Um, I, I think it was they were different artists, but within a certain kind of form, the thing within Europe was almost anything went, you know, and people approached it with a different in a different um, way. But anyway, sorry, I, I didn't mean to jump in there. But the and Empire, I think, was the thing that really unlocked my head, you know, because um, I've been given books on uh, Da Vinci and Michelangelo. Whenever I started drawing, my my mum figured I was. Um, I was going to do something, you know, so I got fired these books and I scratched my head like an ape and wondered, what the hell, you know, (laughs) I had to draw like this. But when I saw The Chicken Empire, it was almost like that, you know, the, the Renaissance on paper. And you see the kind of people whose work I've loved ever since. You know, people like Barry Windsor-Smith, who, who again, is somebody who, who art, um, classical art, was, was a background for him. Same thing with Jeff Jones, the same thing with Mike Coliti, you know. You, I mean, I love Bernie Wrightson just because he scared the shit out of me, you know. Anyway.
0: <laughs> what was the path that led you to A Game of Thrones and being the storyboard artist for that show?
3: When I first stepped into doing Game of Thrones, you know, I didn't even know what the what the the um, uh, the book was or the, the story was that I was asked to do illustrations for. But the fact that it was knights in armor and and um, you know, strange worlds of castles and and um, beheadings and things, it was straight into what I loved in the past, which was Conan territory. You know, I mean, I. I I mean, I've said this many times before, but Conan is one of those things that I wish I'd had the chance to do at one point. You know, it's it's like I love the Robert E. Howard stories. I um I loved the the Barry Windsor Smith Barry Smith as he was uh, then his um uh, amazing uh, Conan stuff. I love the the Basima stuff. You know, you, you the, the world that was being conjured up on paper was phenomenal. And there was and again because they were the classic artists, there was there was this there was this kind of realism to it that. that that um made them there was a grittiness you know that that I loved and there was an ornateness and the great thing was that when I stepped into thrones um it was like I was I was stepping into possibly the greatest comic strip that I could imagine doing you know it it was such good fun and of course at, i mean at that stage i was i was doing an awful lot of um concept work design work because nobody knew at that point because it was the pilot you know what this world was going to be like i mean I mean, you know, I think i probably told you this one before, Ed, but the, the fact was I was bought in pre the um, the pre us knowing that we were actually going to get Game of Thrones in, in Belfast to do. And um, the thing was I didn't even know it was Game of Thrones when I was first handed, um, you know, information onto, uh, you know as to doing this work. I was asked to do some moonlighting, basically. Um, one of my producer um, guys, Mark Huffham, Mark had said to me um, about, um, I was working on Your Highness at the time, and he'd said, could I do some extra work um, on a potential TV series that we might be getting? And I said, sure, what is it? And he wouldn't tell me because he, he couldn't. And um, so they gave me descriptions of little passages of things and asked me to draw some castles, some big giant wolves, some um, some knights in armour, some beheadings and things like that, and, I, and gargoyles. So I turned out a bunch of these drawings for the production designer, and that stuff was then sent away. I went back to work on my day job with Your Highness, and it was only partway through Your Highness that Mark came to me and said, we've got Game of Thrones. And um, I said, well, can I have a job then? And he said, yes. So the point was, what was lovely about that was as soon as I finished Your Highness, I stepped sideways into into Game of Thrones. And, um, I mean, on Your Highness, I'd been doing all sorts of concept work as well, and storyboarding. And the thing was the concepts on your highness were things that we were never going to film i kept being given stuff that was that was um you know it was it was just stuff that turned out to be too expensive or whatever but they kept firing these things these ideas at me and um when i moved over to game of thrones it was like the serious version of what i've been doing on your highness in some ways um but for me game of thrones was stepping into the closest thing i got to conan and i loved i loved every minute of it you know it was weird it's like there's something in some of these jobs where it takes over and you cannot understand what's coming out of you, you know. You're sitting at a drawing table and in a completely different situation to the way you normally work. I mean, most of the artists, like myself, um, we, we sit in our own studios and we've got all our lovely reference material around us, all our comfort, you know, everything that, 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 um, that we could possibly use that might help inform the artwork that we're trying to do. Yet, when, you, when you're sitting in a, in a uh, film studio room, you know, an art department, and you're sitting at a, at a drawing table, that's your corner, and you turn out work out of your mind. I mean, you, you know, you, you look around the room and see some of the, the reference points, and you go and check a few things, but the point is, you're sitting down, and suddenly this stuff's just belting out of you. And it's like, for me, that was, that was the, the experience every day in Game of Thrones, on the pilot, I was walking in and, and just being asked to turn out stuff. And I did. I mean, I got to design the White Walkers. I mean, how cool is that? It was like the it was like the um, the the great ultimate bad guys for the show, and I got to do the original kind of set of paintings that then everything after that on the show was based on. You know, so it was it was one of those you you, you understood in a sense that there was an importance to what it was you were doing. You know, and um, you know, within the job that is, um, because. You, you know, I bought into the world instantly, it was it was the most amazing thing to be working on, and now, you know I've done five seasons of storyboards now, and um, the thing is that it's just, each each season it gets more interesting, there's more stuff, there's more fascinating um, uh, story points, you know that you're trying to hit on um, anyway, it's uh, what was the question, <laughs> sorry I've got miles away, but
0: Will Simpson, thank you very much for coming on the show.
3: Thank you very much for having me. I... Radio
1: Hello there, this is Psyloid, and I'm going to be talking to you, giving you a bit of a catch-up on the Farseer trilogy by Robin Hobb. Uh, and the reason why I'm giving you a catch-up is because the Farseer trilogy had a sequel, the Tawny Man trilogy, which had a sequel, the Fits and the Fool trilogy, the second book of which is coming out this August, so I thought I'd give y'all a catch-up in case you've not caught it. You that's probably...
2: That, that's a lot of trilogy.
1: That's a lot of trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's ace. Um, I am very much behind the times. Most fantasy fans well, I won't say most actually because that's a bit patronising but a lot of fantasy fans have read it already I only started reading it three months ago Um, it's ironic that Ed and and producer I was saying oh, get the the tree version and sort of vaguely disparaging tablets because... If you've got Amazon Prime, like I have, they give you the first book of the Farseer Trilogy for free. I don't know if they're still doing it, but they certainly did three months ago.
0: They were a little while ago giving it out for free to get people hooked.
1: Yeah, that, the first one's always free, <laughs> and it, it is like that. I, I've, I've literally read nothing else for the last three months, um, uh, which is why I'm doing the catch-up. Um, it, The Farseer Trilogy is a great set of books. Uh, If you are buying the paper, the tree version, all the recent editions will have uh, some words by George Ra Martin, or Guru Martin on the front, extolling the virtues of of, of the books. Uh, Ed tells me the two of them are friends. I can totally see that. Um, It's not just because this is a populist uh, fantasy sci-fi bookworm show, but Because it's, I think there's a legitimate comparison to be made between them. They, they explore some very similar themes. Um, there are what could be described as parallel characters um, between them. Um, and like I say, his words are all over the front cover. Uh, I would very much recommend the Farseer trilogy and the Tawny Man. Uh, it's very, very well-written stuff. Um, I would recommend it to maybe, I don't know... Uh, a lot of fantasy fans out there might have kids that they're raising the right way, giving them fantasy books, and who might rightly be concerned about exposing the, the older kids to the, the scribblings of Guru Martin, the dirty, lecherous, bloodthirsty granddad of fantasy. Um, so what's Robin Hobb's books about, then? Well, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Robin Hobb's, Hobb's books are set in The Six Duchies, um and there that, that's a, a little fantasy kingdom. And into the six duchies is born Fitz, uh Fitz Chivalry, who is um the 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 illegitimate son of the heir to the throne. And Assassin's Apprentice, the first book, um starts off uh with Fitz sort of writing a sort of memoir and he's trying to remember what it was like what his first memory is and his first memory is six years old being brought to um, a keep uh, and being being sort of dumped there by his granddad who can no longer afford to, to look after him and he's dumped there and, and sort of told to, to, to the guardsman look this is this is uh, Prince Chivalry's bastard son. I can no longer afford to keep him and Upon looking at him, they, everyone knows it's true he is the image of his father um, and Fitz grows up sort of with no one really knowing what to do with him, he's dumped on um, Prince Chivalry's uh, servant and stable master, a guy called Burrich who, act, who acts as his foster father um, but doesn't really know what to do with him, you know, he carries on running stables um, and things like that and kind of fits in raising this boy when he can, so the boy has a lot of freedom. Um, He runs wild in the town, makes friends there. Another thing he does is makes friends with some of Burritch's pet dogs, and he makes friends with them in a very interesting way because Fitz has a magic called the wit, and it's a thing he doesn't even know he has. Uh, The wit is a way of talking to animals in your mind, and you also bond with animals and you can see through their eyes and they can see through yours um, unfortunately this magic is is kind of shameful and witchy and it's looked down on and Burrich himself kind of looks down on it and as soon as he discovers that, that Fitz has bonded with this puppy called Nosey forcibly separates them um, what the books are about is um, well, a, a few different threads. Um, the overarching plot in the Farseer trilogy is that the kingdom is under threat from an outside force of, uh, sort of Viking-esque raiders who have these red ships and they raid the land but they don't take anything. What they do is um, they seek to conquer and destroy the inhabitants by means of a, a kind of horrible magic called forging where th- th- that sucks out people's emotions and hearts. Um, while this is going on, we have Fitz growing up and becoming a young man. Uh, the Farseer trilogy runs between, you know, as I say, the age of six and the age of 20. Fitz has all the kind of angsty stuff um, that um, illegitimate heirs to the throne have. So he's got all the responsibility, but none of the privilege, because he's not really an heir to the throne, he's illegitimate. He's forced into um, the position of learning to become an assassin uh, because he's part of the family but can't be acknowledged as part of the family so the family train him as an assassin as he's grown up so he has to he has to deal with secrets and lies uh, as well as the responsibility of this kind of magic that he has to have and keep secret um, there is also a sort of secret background history of legends of different magics that there are, Uh, could there be dragons could there have once been dragons Um, could dragons be the thing that saved the kingdom Um, so uh, there's a lot of themes running through it and it's so readable, the joy of it that I find is that she writes the characters very well, she writes them as very human Um, she's been often asked the question of why she tortures her characters so much robin Hobb and um she says oh i don't they do it to themselves <laughs> and uh, and it's very true that the the characters are tortured a lot um emotionally uh physically but it's all done uh, it's not bloodthirsty it's um it's more emotional it's done very subtly um as I was saying, if, if if George Martin's the bloodthirsty granddad, she's the adventurous grandma, and you want to listen to her stories, um, you you, you want to you know she, she's got a voice in storytelling which is it's compelling, uh, and she kind of draws you in. Um, she, she's got a lot of knowledge about wilderness life herself, and you can tell the main character as he you know he ra- he, he befriends animals and things like that. Um, you can believe it and you can believe his wanderings across the countryside and the camp stories and things like that um, so there's a lot of real life input in there um, there is uh, plots about uh, court intrigue and who will who will be the heir to the throne, who will succeed people deposing other people and court. in the middle is our main character Fitz who has to keep his secrets and negotiate all this it's really, really interesting stuff. What I'd like to do—I'm I, I, doing it a terrible injustice here. I think I'm rambling on. So, what I'll do is I'll do a very short reading extract. Have I got time, Producer Al? Yeah. Okay. I will. Okay. This scene is where Fitz and his stepdad, his foster father Burridge, are riding. Uh, Burridge disapproves of the wit and the friendship with animals, uh, but even though he has the power himself. It's a wolf, isn't it? Burrich spoke grudgingly into the darkness. He looked straight ahead as we rode. I knew the set of his mouth. You know I am, a grinning, tongue-lolling reply from the wolf. Burrich flinched as if poked. Night eyes, I admitted quietly, rendering the image of his name into human words. Dread sat me. Burritch had sensed him. He knew. No point in denying anything anymore. But there was a tiny edge of relief in it as well I was deathly tired of all the lies I lived Burrich rode on silently, not looking at me I did not intend for it to happen it just did an explanation, not an apology I gave him no choice Night Eyes was being very jocular about Burrich's silence I put my hand on Sooty's neck, taking comfort in the warmth and life there I waited, Burrich still said nothing ''I know you will never approve,'' I said quietly. ''But it is not something I can choose. It is what I am. It is what we all are.'' Night-Eyes smirked. ''Come, heart of the pack, speak to me. Will not we hunt well together?'' And one thing that Robin Hobb does is she does the voices of animals really, really well. And as an animal fan myself, I I love the way she does the different voices of the different animals. Uh, it's completely enchanting as with a lot of the rest of the writing
0: I'm always completely enchanted by Robin Hobb. I have to admit it's one of the things that um, happens quite often um, when I talk to other authors and I say who do you want to write like it's almost always Robin Mm. If they're fantasy authors absolutely Um, so coming up next do we have enough time to talk about something else yes okay so coming up next I think we're going to talk about gravity I think
1: oh gravity (music) Thank <music> you.
0: So, um shall we talk about gravity
1: and, and it's all all its defiance and all the rest of it? Defying gravity. Define. No I mean, are we talking about the Oscar winning movie Gravity?
0: We are, we are talking about the Oscar something Osc- has changed within me. So, it's, yes.
1: Anyway. We're
0: talking about the Oscar winning movie Gravity, which won a Hugo. Um the heroes ever mm-hmm. being on the Hugo's ever being on the cutting edge of that sort of thing, he said slightly sarcastic. hopefully yeah hopefully oh <laughs> uh, well it, it, it's that whole thing that um, uh, Superman won instead of Hitchhiker Sky of the Galaxy way, mm. um, way we yeah. back when they were things and ever since then people have gone oh Hugo Hugo Awards for media aren't as relevant as Hugo Awards for books mm. but anyway uh, you should if you have the rights to vote for a Hugo Award you should totally vote for us on Best Fan Cast we've stopped being subtle about it <laughs> just vote for us
2: we weren't <laughs> particularly subtle about it to begin with but hey
1: have we even been nominated yet?
2: Nominations are currently open.
1: Good, nominate, so, uh, nominate, nominate, nominate. Like a Dalek. Smooth site. It's almost, nominate. almost nominate. like we planned that. <laughs> 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 um,
0: so uh, the uh, Tess Gerritsen? Gerritsen, Tess Gerritsen, um, who is known for her in Isles books, also wrote a book called uh, Gravity, which is about a female scientist who you know, it, who, who it's essentially she wrote a book that is essentially the plot of Gravity. Mm. Um, so she sold the rights to New Line Productions Um, then uh, uh, Alfonso Curon was attached to the project there was a whole thing then New Line sold the rights on to Warner and then Warner basically went oh well hang on we don't need to um, we don't need to credit the offer because we never signed a contract New Line
1: did it's a short version of that and now it's in court yeah I mean, I'm, I'm led to understand that, you know, in 2008, Alfonso Cuaron sort of showed them his original script for this film, Gravity. <laughs> really? <It's, laughs> this is my idea. It's the fact that
0: I've been attached to another project that's exactly the same name and exactly the same concept. Oh, really? Mm. Oh, really, really... Um, come on, chaps. That's really, really not on. I mean, as I understand it, with the court case, it's not so much been thrown out, is it? As it, it's, there's
1: been procedural sen- shenanigans to slow it all down. Mm, yeah, uh, it, the way it seems to have worked is they've they've not so much thrown it out as said, right, okay, you, you're you're suing for the wrong thing. Come, you know, rephrase and bring go, it back. Go, go away. And,
2: redraft your re-draft options. It, come,
1: redraft back. come back. Come <laughs> back. Uh, essentially, giving them a statement which is a roadmap to what options to. To, to, to put in their next motion. So, but I mean, if it goes through, if if it doesn't get
0: through and it doesn't get challenged and it doesn't this doesn't get fixed, this is a horrible horrible thing because I think for you know getting published is a very hard thing to do. Mm. Getting pu- then getting to sell sell the film rights. I mean, we have a story almost every week about getting for sell the film rights, but that's that's fifty people. Out yeah. of out of millions. H- However,
1: it will destroy that ambition. There'll be no point in having that ambition if you can now just get screwed over by the studio. Um,
0: exactly. I mean, it, it happens. It happens too much already. Uh, we could talk about Alan Moore, but let's not. Um, to actually. I've gone on total tangent in my head. Could you imagine if if, if a movie studio look turns around to Alan Moore and says, "We want to do the movie rights." for one of your works and it's Jerusalem his million word <laughs> practically unfilmable unfilm- film- film- reportedly almost unreadable novel right. um, could you imagine we've got these rights excellent give him in the money right now we try and convert that bang I, I would laugh like a drain if that actually happened <laughs> it won't happen to see he won't do that but um, that would be hilarious nice. know, the thing with Gravity is uh, it's like we came ac- across this recently and it's just one of those things I think, I think that slightly annoyed me and we're trying to avoid talking about Black Library for some reason but when there was a whole White's issue between a book called Spots of Space Marine and Black Library mm. well, lots of people I, I couldn't move for, for outrage mm. uh, and for out, uh, anger despite the fact that it was actually much more nuanced than that right. this is a clear cut case of someone's work being stolen and turned into a Hollywood movie I've only just heard about it yeah, they, they they should. I'm stunned because it's not. I suppose because it's not hot button, because it's not sexy. Uh, I'm stunned. There's not more anger going on. There isn't. You know, you, I, I would have expected the usual you know Twitter outrage machine to have gone into full swing. Mm. Find it fascinating that it hasn't. Find it interesting that it ha- hasn't. Even though this is something that kind of matters, sure.
2: Well, and th- on that note.
0: On that bombshell.
3: This is Fab Radio International.
0: I've been your host, Dead
1: Fortune. And I've been your other host, Siloid.
2: The Bookworm is a truly outrageous production for Fab Radio International and Starburst Magazine. Presented by Ed Fortune and Siloid, produced by A.L. Johnson.